This week on EDC Unlocked, the founder of NAFs, Ben Banters, where we discuss the true meaning of banter. I think like men show their like affection for each other by basically giving each other shit. Uh, where it's a, they don't cross the line, um, but you know they they go to the line and then they like step back a little bit and just see how far they can push it. How he got the confidence to start his knife brand, NAFs. Like I said, I tripped and fell into an industry, and like by the time I'd rolled around in the mud for 10 years, I was like, oh yeah, I can do this myself, you know? I, I always call it like, do what you know, and then move two degrees beyond it. And we ask more of the tough questions. Why the hate for large knives, bruh? <laughs> <laughs> I, I have some inappropriate answers, but I'll, I'll default to, to appropriate ones. Hey guys, we came up with the idea for EDC Unlocked because we felt there wasn't anything out there that gave the EDC community the opportunity to hear the stories behind big names and brands in the space whilst also giving them the chance to ask the questions that they've always wanted to ask. For now, this is a limited mini-series, but if you guys want more, then we would love to come back with another series. And so if you do genuinely like the show, then please follow, subscribe. And if you're feeling extra generous, leave us a short review. This 20 seconds of your time really makes such a huge difference and we'd really appreciate it. Okay, let's get into the episode. Enjoy. Welcome to EDC Unlocked, and today I'm really happy and excited to have on the show Ben Banters, the founder and creator of NAFS. How are you doing, man? I'm so good, Phil. Thanks for having me on, man. I appreciate we, it. We got there finally. We've had a, a lot of technical issues this morning, but yeah, we got there finally. Uh, thankfully, you were hearing like a massive echo in your ear, and there's nothing more annoying than hearing your own voice when you're trying to speak to someone else. Hey, I didn't tell you this when we were doing setup, but I have a degree in broadcast and film, <laughs> and uh, it's insulting that we just spent 20 minutes trying to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not you, me. Yeah. Well, I'm just sitting here doing nothing. Um, so I think we've actually like spoke on kind of on Instagram, like back and forward, like were you like helping us out with a few product launches? And then I think at some point you were just like, look, I love your products, but I'm doing my own thing now. I literally just do not have the time. And I just felt the from someone, you know, from us guys who like started our own brand and we know how difficult it is to do anything else other than, you know, do your own company. I felt your your pain at that point. I was like, right, I need to leave this guy alone. He's creating something cool. So I won't ever message him again unless I have something like this. So yeah, I'm really happy and excited that you can come on and like, Share your story, but then also just talk about, yeah, where you're at with the business because it's super exciting. So, yeah, excited to get into it. Yeah, it, it's it's funny. I remember that day because you were like, hey, do you want to check out those new products? And I'm like, yeah, I do. But I also have like 12 <laughs> other things and I'm not going to do any of it justice. So, yeah, it's uh, I, I think one part of doing anything in life is you have to say no to the things that are not the most important right yeah. now. You know? Yeah, yeah. That's always hard. Totally. So if you can take us back to really before you know, the brand was even a thing, uh, what was your first exposure to, to knives? Like, why did you first start getting into knives? Like EDC, why, did, why was that a thing for you? Was it like from childhood or like maybe if you could just talk about that first exposure and why you became, you know, I guess, obsessed in this, in this area? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I almost look at it in two phases. Like phase one was... Uh, I was a kid who like, I remember going to like Yellowstone as a kid. I'm from out West. And I remember like, I got like a little tiny knife from the gift shop and I was probably like seven or eight. And I was like, yes. And my dad, he had like this shelf and he put it in like the top shelf, like eight feet up there. And I'm like, it's mine. I can't have it. And he's like, no, of course you can't have it. You're a little kid. And so as I've grown, so like I had a Victorinox when I was in Boy Scouts. Uh, when I was a kid, my grandpa took us fishing. And if we caught a fish, he'd let us buy, he'd, he'd buy us a knife. And uh, he took us to this place in Utah called Smith and Edwards. And they had this knife case. And I picked out like the meanest dagger you could find. It was probably like a six inch blade, double edged dagger with serrations. And like, again, that thing went in my dad's shelf. And I'm like, but it's mine. And my dad's like, Oh, no, it's not. So I think he gave me that one when I was 18. I got that one back from him. So that was kind of phase one. And then I ended up just 
like going to high school, going to college. And I didn't really think much about pocket knives. Like I, I really didn't. I was really into video, video editing, that sort of thing. And about three quarters of the way through college, I realized like, oh, I better find a job after college. I was studying broadcast and film. And I ended up talking to a guy at a family party. He was, he's like my wife's first cousin's husband. And I'm like, what do you do for work? He's like, I run a knife website. And he ran Blade HQ. He was one of the owners at Blade HQ. And I was like, hey, do you have video on your website? And he's like, no, but we want to. And that's kind of how I ended up at Blade HQ working for them uh, doing video. So it wasn't like I was a knife guy. In fact, it, it probably took me six months of working there before I actually bought my first knife from Blade HQ that wasn't like a Swiss army knife or a, a skinning dagger that I bought to, I got for fishing. So it was sort of like I fell into it. It was like, I had this experience with knives prior. I had this experience with video and then ended up at Blade HQ. And I was like, wait a minute, there's an industry here. And I actually might enjoy this as a career. It wasn't like some guys will hit me up and they'll be like, Hey, I want to get into pocket knives as a career. And I'm like, I don't know what that's like yeah. because I sort of stumbled and tripped into it. So what year was that that you that you started working at Blade HQ? 2011. Okay, okay. So yeah, like a, a while ago, I guess before, and correct me if I'm wrong, before I guess, well, it was before like Instagram, before I guess Facebook was a thing. So you didn't have these obsessed online communities that could get together and actually talk about these things online. Was that even a thing in 2011? Oh, absolutely. It was. So like Blade Forums was out there. Jersey Devil was a like a Bally song forum. But there weren't Facebook groups. The, the big reason I got a job at Blade HQ was because of YouTube. And they had a competitor, Blade Ops, that was really getting into the YouTube space. And they wanted to compete. And so they were like, let's hire this guy and see if it works. And then we'll go from there. So YouTube was actually, I would call it like the first non-forum EDC community. You had people like Nut and Fancy. You had people like Cutlery Lover who were jumping on there. Even people like Gavco and Tough Thumbs, Jeff Blovell. These guys were kind of these early knife YouTubers. And I mean, you look at Gavco, you look at Tough Thumbs, Jeff Blovell. They're now knife makers making knives full time. They don't even do YouTube anymore. But that at the time was kind of this new school community was on YouTube. And so that was before Instagram, before Facebook groups, any of that. Everyone that wasn't in the forums old school migrated to YouTube and that's kind of where it started. And at what point did you decide to like, I guess, start putting your name out there and start to try to, yeah, engage with the community as you uh, rather than the guy who works at Blade HQ? Such a good question. So the first probably eight, months at blade hq we had the owner was on the youtube channel we had like the marketing manager we had one of the product managers and number one they didn't have time and number two they hated and so but we needed somebody and i realized that pretty quickly like we needed somebody who could get on and be a member of the community and i was really hesitant to do it i i had zero interest in doing it because my degree was in broadcast i'd had to do like the newsman like this is Ben Peterson on the scene and my reels out there. It's horrible. I'm horrible at it, but I just, I realized like nobody else in the company was going to give this the attention that it needed. And I said, well, I want this to be successful. I'll jump in. And I did. And I just straight up told people, I'm like, look guys, I don't know knives. I don't know what I'm doing, but let's have some fun. (laughs) And people really responded to that. They were like, cool, this guy, we're going to go on a ride with this guy. And, uh, and we have, it's been a, a really wild adventure. And, and there are people who, who were there back in 2011, 2012, who have still followed this journey that I'm on and I'm still learning and I'm still trying to understand it all. There's so much. And it's, to me, it was never like this decision to be like, all right, I'm going to be a personality. I was like, no, there's, there's no, nobody else. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's where I jumped in. I would say that's the exact attitude I've had for setting up this podcast. It's like, I'm definitely, you know, I am not, don't know, really, although with yeah, the products we create, I'm not an obsessed knife person at all, but I love like talking to you guys who are and the community and everything that it embodies. And I, I did an episode with Ian, my business partner, and we kind of like, we're just like, we need to be completely honest. We're not 
you know, we don't really know much about all this stuff, but like we're we're really excited to like learn more and speak to more guys like you. And I think rather than trying to pretend you're something you're not, I think people will buy into that uh, honesty, which they obviously did with you. Um, so it was actually like Blade HQ that really helped you give you that platform to get confident, give you, uh, I mean, did you get, did you get free knives like quite a lot? Like, could you just go in and take them from the, <laughs> from, from the warehouse? I mean, what do you mean by free? You know, <laughs> no. So I mean, every now and then we'd get a free okay. knife, but uh, they had they had a few loaners kicking around, and when you're buying them at dealer cost, it it makes it a lot easier to jump into things. And, yeah, uh, yeah, you, you, things kind of come to you. Uh, and so. obviously, I introduce you as Ben Banters. That's how like I know like your name, uh, Ben Peterson. Uh, where did that name like originate from? Where did that? When did you? Was it more for Instagram or was that on YouTube? Such a good question. So when I said I jumped in head first, I lied. I, I kind of tickled my toes in for a few years. And I, I ended up leaving Blade HQ, went to CRKT for about three years, and I managed all of their Instagram and stuff. And we built a really cool channel with them, but I wasn't front and center. I never had to be. And then Blade HQ actually recruited me back for a second round with them. And I went back and I ended up on YouTube again. And I'm like, all right, Instagram's a thing. And in fact, my brother one day is like, Ben, you have this massive following on YouTube. Why don't you have an Instagram? And I'm like, because this is my day job and I just want to have a life. And he's like, you need an Instagram. And so the show we were running at Blade HQ at the time was called Knife Banter. And I looked at it and I'm like, well, that's actually pretty, if we go Ben Banters, that's pretty easy. And uh, it turns out banter. So I have four kids and banter is the first letters of all of my kids and my wife and me. So <laughs> Ben, Athena, and then my four kids. And so there's kind of a family tie in there too. So it's, it's fun. That's awesome. What I because banter, the word is for me, is such like a British word. I, don't, I didn't even know that like it was a word that people really used in America. Uh, and it's something that I've always kind of said from being a kid. Is it a word that people say that much in America? I would say it's one of those words that like we use, yeah. but it's always like, Usually in, in America, when we use it, we say friendly banter. Okay. And what we mean by that is like, we're talking back and forth. We're, we're kind of jousting in friendly ways. Okay. But when knife banter came out, that's what it was. I mean, we were, we were poking at each other. Like the, the hosts were constantly insulting each other on camera. It was just a really good banter yeah. and disagreement. And, but it was all, always friendly banter, yeah. right? And so I felt like it kind of, it, it embodied what I was trying to do within the knife industry. And so, yeah. I, I took it as my stage name, I guess. Yeah. I've had people be like, I didn't know you had a real last name. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, with a name like that, I mean, it's difficult to go back to Ben Peterson when you're called Ben Banters, I have to say. Um, no, I, I, love, I think like men show their like affection for each other by basically giving each other shit. Uh, where it's a, they, they don't cross the line, but uh, you know they go to the line and then they like step back a little bit and just see how far they can push it. So yeah, I, I like it. So yeah, sorry for spending too much time on that, but I just think it's really yeah uh, yeah really fascinating. Um, so how quickly did your Instagram grow at that point when you kind of and were you driving? traffic uh, i don't say driving traffic but were people just looking at youtube and then thinking okay i want to follow this guy i think that's kind of how it happened i i never it was sort of like my behind the scenes right like i was the marketing manager at blade hq and in addition to that i was one of the on on-screen personalities for the brand and so i ended up in kind of these weird behind the scenes places like behind the scenes with protech and it's stuff that like you wouldn't necessarily want to put on a brand's Instagram, but like here I am having dinner with like Rick Hinder, and I'm like, what? What do you do with this? You know? And so I never like went out and said I'm going to build a personality, and I'm going to. It was just I was in unique situations doing unique things, and I thought, you know, I should throw this stuff out there. And I, I actually, if you go through my Instagram, I use it as kind of a professional journal. Mm. I actually love the captions more than the pictures. Like I love to write things down and I like to kind of formulate ideas. And it's actually been, it's fun for me to go back and read them because there's a lot of like thoughts that I was having in that moment in there. Yeah. So. 
And at what point did you think, actually, no, had you always wanted to be an entrepreneur? Was that something that you kind of always wanted to do? Did you, you know, Ian and I talk about it with our journey. We, we kind of, in the UK, you're never really kind of told that you can be an entrepreneur. It's not something that you're, you're kind of drummed into you that you need to go and get a job and work your way up the ladder. And if you're you're lucky, you can retire early and that kind of thing. And so that's what we thought our our destiny was. And then we kind of realized, no, we didn't want to do that. So our entrepreneurial journey was kind of late, but had you realized that earlier on, or was it something you just kind of just thought as you were working for Blade HQ? You know, even in high school, I, so I, I mowed the neighbor's lawn. He was just like, hey, I need somebody to mow the lawn. Uh, I don't know that that was like an entrepreneurial thing, but in high school, I had, it was the early days of video, like VHS, C tapes, all of this stuff. And video editing was just becoming a consumer thing. It was the days of iMovie, Adobe Premiere had come out. We used Sony Vegas. So I'd take neighbors like home videos off these VHS C tapes and stuff. And I would put them on DVD for them. And that was kind of my high school business. So I did all of this video work in high school. So I've always thought like, man, someday I'm going to start a business and I'm going to do something. But I never like, I never had an idea. Like I was never like, oh, I'm going to start this magnanimous thing and do it. I just figured like, if it was right, it was going to happen one way or another. And I, I don't think I ever stuck a pin in knives and said like, I'm going to make pocket knives and design pocket knives and sell them. Like, that's not how my brain worked. Mm. I just, like I said, I tripped and fell into an industry. And like, by the time I'd rolled around in the mud for 10 years, I was like, oh yeah, I could do this myself, you know? And I think that's, that's kind of been my journey is like, I always call it like, do what you know, and then move two degrees beyond it. Mm. Right. So if you know video, well, now do you know email marketing? What about, do you know SEO? Okay, but what about product development? What about accounting? And eventually you realize that if you're constantly pushing your life two degrees beyond where you where you are now, you're going to swan dive into entrepreneurship mm. because you're going to be like, wait, why did they do product development like that? I think I could do it myself. I think I could do it better. And eventually you're it's a slippery slope if you keep learning and you you realize that there's more out there. At least it has been for me. At what point from 2011 and then you've gone back to Blade HQ, at what point did you get the idea for your first knife that you wanted to design and make? And was that was that born just out of curiosity? You just wanted to get it, you know, wanted to do it? Or was it like, okay, I want to do this and this could then potentially become something? Such a good question. My first My first idea wasn't a knife at all. It was a poster. It was actually this poster right behind me. And... I, I had always wanted to make this at work. It's just a big poster that has everything about pocket knives on it. And I wanted to make it just because we'd get all these very basic questions that if you've been into pocket knives for a minute, like there's a very basic answer to like, what's a Tonto? What's the drop point? What's, what is this lock type? And so I had a lot of angst at work at one point at Blade HQ and I, I ended up instead of working 60 hour weeks, like I'd been doing, I said, well, forget that. I'll go in a little later. And in the mornings, I'm going to dump these ideas into this poster that I've always wanted to do at work. Uh, it turns out it was a hundred hour project. And so I woke up at 5am for, I don't know, three months to get it done. But I kind of like was like, I want to create something that is mine. And so the first knife I ever designed was actually the knife that's on the poster I've never made it into a real knife, but that was the first time I'd ever thought about, oh, this could be a product. And I've had probably 20, 30 people over the years say, hey, what what knife is on that poster? I want to buy it. And I'm like, "Eh, it's actually just like, it's a really ugly knife. Uh, I drew it with like, with like a thumb ramp. It had to have like all the features because I was doing these call outs on the knife itself. And so it's a hideous knife. I don't think I'll ever make it, but that was the first one I ever drew up. And what year was that when you when you did the poster? That would have been 2018. Okay, okay. And maybe if yeah. you could take us through the part of the story where, yeah, you start to actually, because I remember looking at your like posts and I, I, you know, I look at your story on your website and stuff and actually it's really relatable and just, yeah, I love the fact that you go into a lot of detail on that as well. But 
it kind of I think you and your wife just going all in and hang on, I'm starting to tell the story here. Can you tell us the story? <laughs> yeah. So so what what ended up happening is I made this poster. We printed like twenty five hundred units. I think we made like two hundred dollars profit <laughs> off of all of them or something. Like it was like it didn't make any sense as a business. But what I realized is people were excited about what I was creating. And so that was the end of 2018, 2019. I realized if I wanted to stay in the knife industry and it made the most sense to stay in the knife industry because that's what I knew already. I said, if I'm going to stay in the knife industry, I need to get out of the knife industry full time. So I, I wasn't naive to say like a poster is going to pay the bills. Like that would have been absurd. But I said, look, I'll go out, get, get a job in corporate America, work for a few years, nurture NAFs as a side hustle. And see where it goes. And so I left Blade HQ in August of 2019. And I went and worked for a company called Pattern doing Amazon brand management. So I was managing like bathroom fans for Panasonic on Amazon and like makeup and foot peels. We have this foot peel that you like stick your foot in acid and it makes your, your foot fall <laughs> off like you're all the dead skin. And so that was my day job. And at night and in the morning, I was building NAFs and I was creating. And so within like two, actually it was like three days of leaving Blade HQ, I announced I was leaving. Um, I talked previously to Wee Knives about potentially designing a knife for them. And they hit me up and they're like, we're ready. Let's go. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, cool. And so that was where the banter came from was in 2019, I designed it. 2020, they announced it. And uh, that was the first knife I designed awesome. was the banter. And it was just super exciting because I realized like I had created a following that was stoked about not just knives, but stoked about my weird ideas. And the, the people showed up in droves for the banter. It was like COVID year. It's like we launched it at uh, SHOT Show in 2020 yeah. and then COVID hit. And I'm like, ah, crap, like this is not going to go well. And here in America, it was stimulus checks and free money, and it, it did incredibly well. And so what I did is me and my wife, we just socked the money away and started building a nest egg for the future to be able to take the business full time. And fast forward, took me about three years. So in April of last year, 2021, I finally decided like, all right, we have the nest egg, we have the revenue let's jump. And we have four kids. Like, it's not like we can go out and be like, let's live on beans and rice. Like, yeah, we have growing kids and yeah, we could, but the reality is like, we wanted to do this in a way that didn't like mess with our family's psyche as much as possible, which is impossible. If you're going to be a, an entrepreneur, it's going to mess with your psyche. It's going to mess with your life. But that's, that was kind of the journey we were on us. Let's figure out QuickBooks. Let's figure out operations. Let's figure out how to reorder and forecasting and all these different things. And then, yeah, last year we said, all right, we either need to shut it down because we do not have time or we got to go all in. And I think for everyone doing anything, making anything, there's a point where you say, this has consumed my life. What am I going to do about it? Am I going to let it? Am I going to jump all in? Or is it going to stay a side hustle and die? Mm. And that was kind of where we ended up is let's swan dive. I'm a swan diver. So. <laughs> Amazing. And, and you said last year, but you said 2021. Was it, was it in 2021 you left? So I left in 2019. I worked till 2022, uh, 2022. in corporate yeah. America. Right. Okay. And then 2022, we made the wow. jump. To okay. No, I just, yeah. I, I love, I love that story because we had to, I don't want to keep relating it back to us, but it, it, I, I think- Please do. You do have to. So we left the corporate world, but then we had to go and take our old corporate jobs back, but work remotely whilst we built this. And we had to do it for, yeah, how long was it? I think it was three years, just like you. And we had to juggle working really long hours in our old jobs that we really didn't like because we believed in, in what we were building. And I think that can be a really, really difficult thing, particularly when there's no, there's no guarantee that it's going to work. And there's a lot of like difficult times and, you know, yeah, just like you said, like, you know, I've never 
dealt with a factory before. I've never, you know, I've never dealt with a 3PL or customs, all this kind of stuff. And so you're like, you kind of, I don't know about you, but did you ever get like an imposter syndrome where you were like, you know, I've never done this before. Like I'm not this one of these entrepreneur prodigies that started a business when they were 18. I'm doing this like, I don't know, were you doing this in your thir- in your 30s? Yeah, I'm 35. Yeah. So we started the business when I was like 30. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I think you have to live with the imposter syndrome. Like it is such, it is so hard to be good at something that you've never done before. Like that's all there is to it. And I think that you have to bumble through it. I remember we did a Kickstarter. This would have been 2021. No, it was 2020. We did a Kickstarter and we made these titanium rulers and they're, they're kind of fun. They're cool. This is actually an aluminum version of it, but um, we did this Kickstarter and I really wanted good packaging for this Kickstarter. And so like I went down this rabbit hole of Roland front tuck, E flute, F flute, die lines, all of this stupid stuff. And at the end of the day, I spent so much on that stupid packaging and it looked crappy. It looked, it was fine. It didn't look great. Uh, I still have like a hundred boxes of it in the garage because I can't get rid of it. Like I, I will not because it, it was so stinking expensive. But you know, when I work with a supplier now, I know the difference between E flute corrugated and F flute. I know the different, like how do you, what's a roll in front tuck with a dust cover, all of this stupid stuff that like you don't know until you have bashed your head against it. And I think that sometimes people get nervous when it, when the head bashing gets hard because like there will be problems, there will be required head bashing against a problem. And uh, one thing that I've kind of adopted is this idea that no one is coming. Like no one's going to come bail you out of your, your e-flute problem with your packaging. Like that's your problem. Yeah. And so I just think, the imposter syndrome is real, but you just, you say, look, I'm doing this and maybe some people aren't stoked, but I don't know. I, I love the quote, um, light yourself on fire with enthusiasm and people will come from miles around to watch you burn. <laughs> I've never heard that. That's awesome. <laughs> kind of morbid, but just this concept that like, if you are stoked about what you're doing and you put out something quality, people will come and they'll be stoked with you. Totally. Yeah. Um, and, and how does so obviously at the beginning it sounds like it was just you and your wife is there a team now do you have like more people on board like how does that work is it is it all remote do you have an office yeah so we operate out of our garage we have three full-time employees that come to our house awesome. we have uh how many part-timers now we're at like four part-timers some of them are like neighborhood teenagers who come and help out they're amazing um the city might shut us down if we don't keep the traffic down because officially we're not supposed to have a business in the garage <laughs> uh, with employees. But um, yeah, so we we operate strictly out of the garage at this point. We just signed a lease on a 2,400 square foot building. It's about four minutes from our house. And uh, we're going to open up a little shop there, a little storefront, and then move all of our distribution and, and operations there. So you talked about 3PLs, third-party logistics. I like hands-on and it's probably to my detriment because i like so in the early days of our business we wrote a note to every single customer handwritten note which is a stupid way to do business i recognize that but there are people who receive that handwritten note that are still buying from us and that kind of high touch so now we put like a sticker and we put like a a lifesaver's breath mint in every single order but i love like that high touch kind of boutique style of doing business. And it, I don't know, it just makes me happy to create jobs and give people opportunities on the ground. That's nothing to say, nothing bad to say about 3PLs. It's just like, you're another product, another SKU in their system. Yeah, I want our stuff to, to be really interesting and maybe a little bit different in the whole experience. Yeah. No, I was always, I was always quite jealous of, cause we started the business in the UK, but we sold in the US. So we could never go through that. I remember us having issues with one of our products and, you know, we just wanted to be able to like go and sort it out, but we just couldn't because we were in the UK and we launched in COVID as well. So we couldn't even leave our house at that time. So um, super frustrating. What What's your vision for the brand like now? Is that something you 
you work on with your wife? Do you have one at this stage? Yeah, absolutely. So I would, we don't have like a mission statement yet, but in my mind, what we're doing with NAFS is create, educate, entertain. So I want to create things that have value, that are useful, that are maybe a little bit off the beaten path, but things that are quality and are highly useful. Uh, educate. I want to teach people about that stuff, right? Like one of the things that I've always found is like, if you can teach somebody something, they're in debt to you. And I don't know how to explain it. I, I look at like all my teachers in high school, even like my second grade teacher, Mrs. Chambers. Like these are people that I personally feel indebted to because of something that they gave me that I couldn't pay for, right? And so, yeah, you can buy our products, but I also want to educate people and help them understand like, hey, this is a pocket knife. Here's how you maintain it. It's not something to be nervous about, right? Like I don't make weapons. Uh, some people make daggers, switchblades, all that stuff. Like that's not my demographic. That's not what I do. I make everyday carry tools. I make basically glorified letter openers that are super fun in the woods if you want to go camping, right? And then the last part of it is entertain. And one of one of your listeners asked about the space kitties. Why do we do space kitties? And I think it goes back to this idea that like knives are fun and we're going to have fun with knives. Like let's, it, it doesn't have to be all black tactical. Like that's not my world. Like I like to have fun. I like to be goofy. And so entertaining to me is like, let's make this enjoyable. And we don't all have to be like, tactical operators to enjoy this this hobby of knives and that's really resonated with people yeah no, i love that i think there's a there's a whole different spectrum of people that are into knives and it doesn't have to be this i guess typical manly man that's going out and killing a bear with his bear well as i say bare hands and his knife um <laughs> um so i'd love to get into the questions from our audience so we had quite a few come in so yeah if we could get into those it'd be great so someone's someone said why the hate for large knives bruh <laughs> <laughs> i i have some inappropriate answers but I, I'll, I'll default to to appropriate ones um no look here's the thing again it goes to this idea of what what will you take with you? So like the big banter, for instance, this one came out last year. It's too dang big for me. Like it fills the pocket. It fills the hands. I have about medium, large size hands, but I never find myself carrying this one just because like, what do I do with a knife? I open packages. I cut apples for my kids. I whittle sticks when I'm camping and I cut strings off my shirt. And like if, if somebody says they do more than that, most of them are lying and you don't need a knife this big to be able to do that. Again, I don't make weapons. I don't make self-defense tools. And so for me, it's sort of like this whole philosophy of like, how much tool can you, how, how little tool do you need to get the job done? The baby banter has been incredibly popular. People just really like it, but it's a small knife. It's not a big one at all. Mm. Okay, that was a good. I, I would have liked to hear the inappropriate answer as well. And maybe we could we could do an after hours EDC and like. Um, uh, so, what's your current go to knife? What's your favorite? Oh, it's it's such a good question. One thing about me is I'm constantly doing research and development. I'm constantly working on a a new project, something coming down the pipeline. So I've been really excited about the lander. We released the lander last year. And basically, it's it's a cheaper, less expensive version of the banter, kind of a V2, with some changes that I've wanted to make on it. Uh, can I share it? When is this podcast coming out? When's this it coming out? It will be uh, probably in June or July. Okay, okay. This is perfect. So uh, this is the, the brand new Lander. We just got the prototypes today. It's the Lander 2, and we're doing another version of it, uh, Lander 2 and 3. So these ones have crossbar locks on them. So instead of liner locks, crossbar locks, and then we're doing two sizes in it. And so this is like R&D in real time, man. Like this came in like four hours oh, ago. Really? And yeah, so this is what I'm carrying today. We'll be launching this on Kickstarter in the next month or so. Awesome. And it, the thing is, I love, like, this is the original lander. We stuck a different lock on it. We stuck a different blade seal on it. I love the game of 
take a thing, iterate on the thing, right? Make a baby banter, make a big banter. Cool. Now let's do it with the lander. Let's make a little lander. Let's make a large lander. And then you don't have to teach the consumer what the message is, right? Like it's scales that are swappable, open source, creative commons, like the whole system works together. So we're not just designing a product, we're designing a process and teaching people the process. Love it. Hey, Phil here, co-founder of Home and Hadfield. Just interrupting the episode to let you know about something truly special to us. Community is a huge part of everything we do. And so we've created a Facebook group where we share our newest ideas and get feedback from you, our customers, to make sure we're developing products that you actually want to see. In return, we give away free products regularly. We're probably giving away a free product right now and huge discounts of up to 35% on all product launches. Whilst this began as something fairly simple, it's grown into an amazing community of like-minded people. And so if this sounds like something you could be interested in, I've left the link to the group below in the description. So come join us. It's free and you never know, you might enjoy yourself. Okay, back to what you came here for, the episode. So someone's asked, I'm an avid collector from budget to customs. Why do you think so many people in the knife community look down on lower end knives? I've read so many comments that bash those that are just trying to show off a knife they love, but end up being ridiculed because it isn't a few hundred dollar grail piece. I love that question. Here's the thing. How many people on the road are driving Honda Accords, Toyota Corollas, Hyundais, Kias, right? Like you look around and it's probably between those four brands. You're looking at like probably 40, 50% of all cars on the road. Now, would everybody want to be driving a Ferrari? Sure. And I think the guys driving a Ferrari, good on them, right? But I don't think it's appropriate or good for the Ferrari driver to look down on the person driving the Accord Mm. because chances are the Ferrari guy was driving the Accord 10 years prior, right? But I, I think that there's a little bit of that in the knife industry, you know? And the interesting thing about knives is it's not a 200, it's not a quarter million dollar car. It might be a $500 knife. And let's be honest, a lot of people can swing a $500 knife if they're careful with their budget or if they go into debt. Not a lot of people can drive that $250,000 car, right? They can't jump that hoop. So I think you get some of that same bro pride that happens with the $250 car with the, the Sabenza guys looking down on like the CRKT squid guys, right? And it's the same thing. It's hubris. I just think for me, it's like, get the tool that works for you. Like if you're going to go out and lose a $500 Sabenza in a creek when you're hiking, like that's a lot of tears, right? But if it's a $58 lander, yeah, that hurts, but it's not the end of the world for you. So I don't know. It's an interesting question. I like that. Uh, Yeah, I like that answer. Um, So... I think you kind of alluded to it earlier, but someone's asked, like, why are a lot of your designs space-themed? Asking for a fellow space fan. I assume you, you, you were talking about you just want to have fun, right? Yeah, and I, I've i realized, so one of the things that I really like about space is it's like the ultimate adventure. Like, these guys and girls hop on a rocket and, like, blast out it. Like, they could die, right? Like every time they go up, they could die. And like, I, I love the adventure of the pushing the limits factor. The other cool thing about space is all of NASA's imagery is creative commons. So you get some of the best imagery in the entire world of the universe for free, which is pretty darn cool. I, I, I've got like a weird, since I was a kid, I've had a weird fascination with space. I probably haven't like uh, expanded upon that as I've got older, but it always does. Yeah, you go down a rabbit hole when you start thinking about space, for sure. Phil, did I got a question okay. for you? Did you go to space camp as a kid? I, I didn't. I don't. That wasn't a thing in the UK. Oh, I used yeah, to see. Yeah. I used to see it on when I was a kid. I used to see it that that was a thing in America, and I was like, that would be cool to go to. But I'm assuming you did. I did. <laughs> like total nerd. Like you know, like it was great. In fact, I was trying to be a cool kid. I was probably like 12 or 13, and I was trying to be a cool kid with all my cool friends. And I went to space camp and I didn't tell us <laughs> when I got home. <laughs> I like that. A, a, like a uh, secret, a, a summer nerd. But then when you're in, when you're in school, you're trying to be yeah. cool. I like it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, what's an unexpected challenge in the market of knives and accessories? That's quite a broad question. 
I think for me, um, one of the unexpected challenges we've taken the business full time is the number and challenges around quality. Like it is very hard to make a quality product time and time again. Obviously, we work with OEM partners overseas, so we have other people making our stuff. It's just incredibly hard to get a good product and get it over and over. So every batch of landers we do, we QC every single one of them. And that's not a knock on the supplier. It's just we're trying to hold this really high level of quality and these really high tolerances. And what I've realized, and I never understood this before, but it is hard to make quality stuff and make it repeatedly. Mm. And so that's the challenge I see. Uh, and, and it will never go away. Like, we're going to mess stuff up. I think the big thing is, how do you take care of the customer on the back end of that? I could not agree more. Uh, so I don't know about you. So when we first started with our, like, doing inspections and stuff like that, we got advised that people do 30% inspections. So only 30% of products get inspected and when you're dealing with you know factories in china we were just like okay that just sounds low so we were like we're going to do 100 percent on our first one and we're just going to take it from there we have never not done a 100 percent inspection and we're so glad because even with a 100 percent inspection the odd thing gets like missed because the inspector doesn't quite get it um and yeah i always just found it really intriguing that i was like i guess those for maybe were for more simple products, like, I don't know, yeah, like spatulas or something like that, you don't need to do 100% inspections. But yeah, that extra money you spend on doing 100% inspection, like you save so much more with, you know, customer satisfaction, putting out products that you you absolutely love. Um, did you ever have that advice like that? Because did you say you do inspect all of them? Is that you're saying 100%? We do. We've done one batch where we inspected about 25% and they were all passing. Okay, And we said, okay, cool. We can move on. Yeah. Our plan was to do all of them, but it was like, hey, there's nothing to see here. But yeah, we have, on our landers, we do 100% inspection. If it's soft goods, so like we make, like our tool burrito, it comes out of Vietnam. Yeah. And it's uh, it's a wax canvas. We don't even inspect them. Like, it's one of those things that like, chances are it's right. Yeah, You know, I mean, we'll inspect like one one out of every hundred or whatever. But the reality is it's hard to mess up a soft good the way that you can mess up a hard good. Can I ask you, this isn't a question from the audience, but kind of now we're, yeah. we're veering into this area. What's your opinion on like made in US and the, I guess the, we have it in the, in the UK as well, like a kind of that obsession with something being made locally, but I think without the realization of what comes with that as well. Uh, so our, our products are made in China. We tried everything we could to find a supplier in Europe, US, uh, various different places around the world. And then ultimately, the factory we found in China was able to deliver better quality than the large majority of all of them at a price that meant we could we could sell at a premium kind of price, but it's, it's so affordable to a lot of people. But we had a review on Amazon where someone said, I love the product but gave us a three-star review because it was made in China. And it's just really interesting that, you know, Apple, uh, Nike, or Nike as you guys might call it, like Reebok, all of these guys have factories in China and everyone will buy their products from there. But then when smaller companies do make their products in China or, or maybe let's say Asia, there is this, yeah, I guess, animosity to, to doing that. But for now you're on the other side of it and it sounds like you know you do make some products in Asia. What's your what's your view on all of that? My my whole view is this. You know, I think there's something to be said about products made in the country that they're from. Mm -hmm. Fewer carbon emissions. It's just a like you have more control over the process. I'm not opposed to it. I actually love USA made products. Our our poster is made in the US. Yeah. Uh, it's made down in a little town called Price, Utah. Yeah. And I think it's really great. I love it. But the reality is to do things in America is incredibly expensive. And I would suspect the UK is the same. I don't think that's an excuse not to do it. Um, we have a few things that are made in the USA, and I, I'm proud of those things. I think it's cool. They're really, really good at what they do, and they have capacity. And I think that's what a lot of people don't understand 
is if you want to have a knife, a, a folding knife made in America, nobody has capacity. So like I was out in Texas for Blade Show Texas, went toward the tactile knife factory, tactile turn. They make pens and they make their own pocket knives. Like I asked Will, I said, do you guys have any extra folding knife capacity? And they're like, no, we don't. <laughs> like we're too busy making our own stuff. So I'm not, I'm not saying that you can't, but to make it at scale is very, very difficult in OEM. So if you're making your own stuff, again, still difficult, but if you're having somebody OEM it, even more difficult. So I think what people don't realize is like there has to be a balance in manufacturing. The reality is we do not have the manufacturing capacity in the United States to make pocket knives at scale the way that people want to consume knives mm -hmm. at scale. Yeah, that And so what do you do? You you tap into the global supply chain and you do it that way. So I don't I don't feel the need to apologize to people that don't like uh, imported products. Like cool. Go go buy something else. Yeah. Like there are so many options. Vote with your dollar. Yeah. Yeah. We um we just wouldn't have been able to start the business. I think uh, we were getting People just don't want that business. We wanted to put a, an order of 500 units as our first ever order. And I think they were saying like it needed to be like 10,000, 15,000 units. And the price was just so much higher. So we just never could have done it. So home in Hadfield wouldn't even be a thing. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to ask you to get, get someone else's opinion because we would love to be like a UK or US like made company. It's just like for when you're starting out and you're bootstrapping it yourself, it's just really just kind of not realistic. So I like this question. If you could gift a knife to anyone throughout history, who would it be and why? Great question. I saw that question. I was hoping you wouldn't ask that one. I, I wasn't sure. <laughs> um, I don't know, man. I, I almost feel like there's got to be some sort of like famous, like, famous person that was like tied up or something that really <laughs> needed a pocket knife, like really badly. You know That's what I mean? To look at it. But uh, no, I mean, I, I think I'm sure George Washington had a lot of pocket knives, a lot of knives, but like if you could get your knife in George's pocket, that would be cool. You know, yeah. so you're from the UK. So maybe you don't see George Washington the way I see George Washington. Oh, that was but, pretty, uh, pretty cool guy. I mean, I was thinking actually you could just gift it to someone where it would be a complete shock to them where they would be like, what are you doing? Like the queen, uh, gifting it to the queen. <laughs> that would be amazing. Yeah. Uh, okay, cool. Well, I'd like to hear other people's comments. Like, let us know who you would gift your, you know, your knife to someone in history. Um, are there any other plans to do collabs with other makers? It's a good question. Right now, we are in hardcore NAFS R&D mode, research and development. So I would like to do some collabs in the future. The challenge I have with collabs is I can design myself. I can put my ideas to paper and create. And when you bring in a collaborator, well, now you've got more opinions and that's good. I think that's a great thing. But more cooks in the kitchen means that you can't move as fast. You can't bring as many products to market. And right now we're in like... I don't want to call it survival mode with NAFS, but we are in like year one, make it work, right? Like we started the business in 2018, but this is our first year being full time. And so we just have to crank things out as seamlessly as possible, as quickly as possible. And sometimes when you add more cooks, it slows down the kitchen. Yeah, we're kind of experiencing the same thing. We really want to start doing collabs with other brands and we will. It's just you got to try and keep the main thing, the main thing. Otherwise, you just, you know, I say this as we're recording a podcast, which is obviously not the main thing for the brand. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, trying to keep the main thing, the main thing is, is difficult because uh, it's so exciting doing all these other things. I think this is going to be, you're going to give a similar answer to the large knife answer that you gave before. But what's your view on like fixed blades and do they ever, have you ever had a fixed blade enter your EDC rotation? Yeah. So I love to go backpacking. I love to go hiking. Anytime I go backpacking, I take a fixed blade. I think it's a great tool to have. I have one summer for about a week, I EDC'd a fixed blade on vacation. I went to Yellowstone and up to Montana and uh, I hated it. Like it sits there and pokes you in the ribs and I'm kind of a skinny sucker. So 
Like it's like poking me in the side. And then I just, I don't love an EDC fixed blade, mostly because of that poke you factor. Um, but with that said, I'm actually working on one okay. uh, because I want to see if I can, I want to see if I can fix it for myself. Yeah. Like I, I've just never had one that I was super stoked about. And I think that there might be some modifications and changes to be able to enjoy it myself. A fixed banter. I like the thought of that. <laughs> um, so a NAFS slip point folder was an excellent idea for the following projects. Don't you think so? I'm reading this exactly as I can see it. Uh, sorry, I probably should have uh, made this more readable when I was looking at it. Do you recommend any kind of product like this for grade school kids for sheer protection purposes only? Um, this is um, <laughs> that they would be taught only to use in life or death situations, but would be safe enough for them to have with them. An interesting question. Do you, do you remember that time I told you my dad stuck like grade school knives on the highest shelf? That's because grade school kids are idiots. <laughs> like, <laughs> I've got a couple of them, right? Like, I, I think the reality is this, like kids should learn about pocket knives. They should learn about knives in the kitchen, right? Like this is man's oldest tool and kids should learn about it. If a kid is using a knife for self-defense, something has gone horribly, horribly, horribly wrong. I don't think that is a good option for a kid, even for adults. If you are using a knife for self-defense, like 12 other things have gone wrong in your life. And you probably should have worked on those 12 things before you carried a knife for self-defense. And, and I think there are self-defense instructors that would argue with me. And I think if you are teaching, if you are taking classes, if you are learning to use this as a self-defense tool, that's different. But I think a lot of people that carry knives as a self-defense tool are using it. They're not trained. And the reality is, I, I think we'd be better served as a society working on de-escalation techniques and how to talk to people like humans mm than we would teaching kids how to use a knife in a, in a life or death situation. And it's like, it's the old saying, right? Like don't bring a knife to a gunfight. Like that's like, I, I see no reason for that. Yeah. I'm glad you asked that question. It's a yeah. One. Yeah. And I mean, God, I mean, I was an idiot when I was a kid. So if someone had given me like a knife, they just could have, yeah. Uh, I think most Dude, I, guys I, are idiots when they're young. Yeah. I like, I'm going to throw my son under the bus for a second, but he has a baby banter. And one day I get a call from the neighbor and he's like, uh, he's my age. And he's like, Hey, your, your son is chasing my daughter with his pocket knife. Can you fix that? And I'm like, Oh, I'm so sorry. Like, this is not good. So, yeah. No one was hurt. Yeah, cool. <laughs> uh, will you be making more knife rolls? Um, I'm sure we'll make another one in the future. I think they're fun, but the, the reality is like, I don't know how, like it has to do with sales, right? Like if it sells and it sells well long-term, sure, we'll make more. But how many ways can you store a knife, right? Like mm. you've got stationary storage, like what you guys make, mm. beautiful cases, by the Thank way. You. Uh, you've got portable storage, like a, a, a vault case or a, a Pelican case. And you've got a knife roll. Like, what you going to do? You know, <laughs> like at some point, I don't see a ton of innovation there. If I find something, I will. Um, someone says, what is up, guys? Uh, <laughs> when will we get titanium scales for the lander or for the banters? Uh, titanium for the lander. Um, Way of Knife actually just came out with some last week. They're beautiful, beautiful milled titanium. And they will customize them in any color you want. Um, the lander for me has always been a budget knife. When you start slapping titanium on it, it definitely leaves the budget category. So there are some aftermarket parts for it. Uh, titanium banter is on my list at some point in the future. Awesome. So I'm trying to make sure we get to the the ones. So what's the best steel you can get on a knife for $200 in your opinion? People love Magnica. I think it's, it's a great steel right now. Uh, you can get it for... 150 175 bucks on a knife depending on what it is yeah cool and someone said been daily driving the baby banter for a while now love it as a designer of things not just knives what would be your dream design project in any field imaginable this sounds really stupid but 
I'd love to design a jacket. Okay, I wasn't expecting a jacket. Okay. So I love jackets and backpacks. So like, I don't collect things on purpose, but I have so many jackets and so many backpacks. And I it, like on accident, right? Like I just it like came into my life and I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll take that, <laughs> you know? And so I, I think that um, the thing about backpacks and jackets that are really, they're a very, uh, I'm trying to think of the word. I'm, I'm going to go there. It's an intimate product. It like wraps itself around you. Like it's on your back, it's on your shoulders. Right. And I think getting it right is very hard. Mm. And so I don't know that I'll ever design either of those, but I think that they're really interesting consumer products that have to be done right or they're absolutely wrong. Yeah. Okay. Uh, unexpected answer. I liked it. Uh, what was the most surprising part of designing your first knife? Uh, when I got it, it, in fact, it was this knife right here. It was the banter. This is, this is the prototype. Um, when I got it and it was right, that was the coolest thing. Um, uh, I got this one and a, and a blue one. And I just, I remember standing in my kitchen going like, it's right. Mm -hmm. And I, not that I doubted we, right. But I'd just seen so many knives that were not super appealing, not from Wii or anything, just generally. And this is the knife that I wanted. And when it showed up in my kitchen, it was right. Mm. And that was such a pleasant surprise. So, like, I think we made, like, one or two minor, minor changes to the, the banter. And it's been right, which that, to me, is such a cool experience. When, you, when something is in your brain and you take it to paper and you take it to prototyping and then you hold it in your hand for the first time. Like I have four kids and my wife would hate me saying this, but it's almost like holding your child. Yeah. Like it's something that has come from you. It's your, it's your brain mm. in, in the flesh, you know, in a weird way. So yeah, no, no, that's a, that's a great point. I think uh, it does wonders for the imposter syndrome. If you're, when you finally kind of that comes and you're like, wow, I, I can actually deliver on what I've been, what I've been imagining in my head. Um, who in the knife making community inspired you to uh, design your own project product? Sorry. I don't think it was a, a single person or event. Um, but when I worked at CRKT, I got to sit down with a lot of knife makers. I was doing video for CRKT. And so I would go and, film videos with like Jesper Voxnes, Lucas Burnley, Ken Onion, Alan Fultz. And I, I remember driving around Portland with Ken Onion and just hearing like how he thought about knives. I got to work with Lucas Burnley a lot and hear kind of his thoughts and kind of coach him on camera and Jesper Voxnes, same sort of thing. And I, I remember one night it was a shot show, Alan Fultz and Lucas Burnley and I were at dinner and Alan was showing how a folding knife works and how it has to fit into the handle. And so, like, I don't think I set out to design a knife. I really didn't. But I think it's sort of that, that old saying, like, you become the, the sum of the three people around you or whatever. And I think I just, I learned by osmosis from a lot of these different really big makers. And you listen to it long enough. And then as a, as a marketing guy, you see all this data and you're like, well, Ken Onion told me this. I'm seeing this data at Blade HQ. What if you combine those ideas? Mm. And yeah, so it's it's always just kind of been this process of like, oh, I could combine these things that I know into a final product that people could buy. Awesome. And um, what's the obsession with Mexican candy? <laughs> <laughs> so um, we we came out with the tool burrito and. We, we do a loaded burrito too. And historically we've put these Mexican suckers, they're mango flavored with chili on the outside. I don't know if you've ever spent any time in Mexico, but they, they put chili powder on their fruit. And so like you can go to a fruit stand in Mexico and just like you buy your fruit and you, you pour chili powder on it. And so um, the obsession is I, I served a mission for the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in Louisiana, Spanish speaking. And so I speak Spanish fluently and I picked up a love of tacos, burritos, empanadas, like you name the Latin food. I love it. 
And part of that is Mexican suckers because they're delicious. Wow. That definitely sounds like an acquired taste. I, uh, I'll have to give it a go. I'm, I'm going to send you one. Okay. Give me your address. I'll ship it across the world. Okay. okay. I'll maybe uh, have my reaction live on camera on another episode. Uh, all of your knives look alike. Is that the intention? They should look alike. Yeah. yeah, they should. You should be able to look at one and say, this is a Ben Peterson design. I think that there's a beauty in that, that uh, I don't, I'm designing a Toyota Tacoma and the Gen 1s and the Gen 2s should look alike. Mm. Is a Tundra going to look similar? Yes, it's going to look similar. That's how I think. I agree. Final question. How hard is it to make an ergonomic knife for the masses? How many people or groups did you have to test the fitment with? I think that's an interesting question. It, products go to the lowest common denominator, right? Like I've said this on previous things, but pencils and pens all look the same because of their function, right? Like you can make it a little longer, a little shorter, but most of your pens and pencils are going to be about the same size. And they're going to be about the same diameter. In my mind, knives sort of follow that same trend. If you're going to force somebody's hand into like a multiple finger choil, like you'll see knives that have like three or four finger choils, that's not going to fit everybody. So when you think about it, if you can make a product that it's like a steering wheel, right? Like all steering wheels, probably because of regulations and stuff, but they're about the same size, but they're about the same size because of the function of the tool. So I actually don't think it's that hard if it fits my hands and it fits my neighbor's hands who has these big old ham hands. I'm like, cool, it works. If it fits my wife's hands who has really, really little hands, it works. <laughs> cool. Um, look, I, I think we've probably gone a little bit over time. So apologies for that. I was keen to get through. I think we pretty much got through all of the questions. Um, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. I love you know, being, I feel like we should do another episode in like three or four years time and, uh, and just see how far you've come. Cause I know, you know, you've got such an obsessed community, which, you know, shown by the questions that we've had that I know this is just going to, you know, go from strength to strength. So I'm really excited for you and, uh, and the brand to see, to see how it goes. Thank you, Phil. I appreciate you having me on. This has been a pleasure. I love talking about this stuff. I love the, I love the entrepreneurial questions, the business questions. Like, to me, this whole industry is not just steel and handle materials. It's very much what's happening on the back end of it. I think a lot of people see the 25% on the front end. I love that, but I also love the 75% on the back, and it's been fun to talk about it. So thanks for having me. Hey, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Really means the world to us. And if you would like to show us any extra support so we can keep this podcast going, please follow, subscribe. And if you have any extra time, leave us a review. It really would mean the world to us. Thank you so much.